I want to say hello to everybody online. I want to say what's up to everybody in the room. Good morning, Northern Hills Church. It's good to see you all. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor at Northern Hills. Just stepped in in the last couple weeks. And so if you're new, just glad to have you here. I'm still getting settled in, but I got to say, I'm feeling more at home every week, guys. I'm getting a little too comfortable, I think, all right? So I'm, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying it here. So just love the community, love the family and all that. And we're going to dig right in. If you guys want to follow along, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 2 in just a few minutes. But I want to ask you guys a question. To get started, if you were to go down to, let's say, just Denver this week at some point, let's say you're just walking around Lodo, hanging out, and you go up to any random person, and if you asked them, hey, what is your just perception of Christians in general? Just kind of give me your take. I I'm curious what you guys would think would come out of people's mouths just if you were to be walking around our city. And actually, I just got a little curious, all right, I couldn't help myself. I actually was like, you know what, I do want to know what some people would say. So I actually texted three friends of mine who would not call themselves Christians. It's not something they're particularly interested in at this moment. I said, hey, I just want to know, how do you view Christians, all right? And this was a vulnerable moment for me because I'm like, there's no way this could possibly go well for me or, or myself involved. I hope this doesn't hinder the relationship. But I'm like, I just got to know. And so I texted these friends, and these were my friends' responses, all right? First one, I said, okay, what's your perception of Christians? He said this, judgmental, boring old-fashioned. That was friend number one. Thank you. That feels really good. You know I'm a pastor of a church, right? I really appreciate that. Now, second friend, the female friend of mine, unwelcoming, discriminatory, stubborn, and patriarchal. Friend number two. I've got good friends, right? You guys could just tell right now. I love, the, I love the real talk. I appreciate the honesty. Friend number three, good friend of mine, he just said legalistic and judgmental. So those were all the responses from my friends about their views of Christians. And interestingly, 15 years ago in 2007, a study was done on the perceptions of Christians in America. This is from 2007, okay? And they left with six kind of big, broad findings based on how people see Christians. Um, at this point in time, I want to see if any of these surprise any of you guys. Number one, Christians are too pushy. They're insincere and concerned only with converting others. Number two, hypocritical. They say one thing, but live something entirely different. Number three, too political. Christians are primarily motivated by a political agenda and promoting right-wing politics. Number four, homophobic. They show contempt for people who live different lifestyles. Five, sheltered. Christians are boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. Is anybody feeling good right now? Am I encouraging anybody yet? Don't worry, we'll get there. And the last one, number six, judgmental. Christians are prideful and quick to find fault in others. Now, interestingly, those weren't too far off what some of my friends even said in their texts, and this was 15 years ago. I'm wondering if you guys think any of those perceptions have changed even just in the last 15 years, even with all of our cultural developments. I'm willing to guess a lot of those would still be pretty similar. And here is what I'm curious about. How does a religion that is founded on the most profound act of self-giving love, that has an incredibly high bar for the treatment of other people, for caring for the poor, for loving other people. How does a religion founded on those principles develop this kind of negative perception? How does that happen? And that is kind of why we are leaning into this series we are calling Compelling. We launched this whole series off last week, and really, the whole premise is this. Christians, 
by definition, should not be repelling, but compelling. That there should be this attractiveness to the way we live and the way that we act and the way we engage with culture that actually draws people in and makes them want to know more about God and engage with Jesus. And so we've been really asking a hard question of ourselves. If you're a Christian in this room or online today, this is the hard question. We've got to look in the mirror. Are we compelling? Are we? Are people more interested in Jesus because of their involvement with our lives and us coming into contact with them? That is just the real question we got to wrestle through. And what does it look like if you're a serious Christian to engage with the world and this culture and the people in it so we can truly have a real meaningful and positive impact in this world? That is what we're wrestling through today. And so we're going to look at a passage today that I think is really interesting for this conversation. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2. Here's why I think this is so interesting. Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, so he knew this guy personally. And at this point in time, Peter is writing a letter to a group of Christians in the first century. So this is 2,000 years ago, this real events, this actually happened. But here's what's interesting about the context. These Christians that, G that Peter's writing to were actually experiencing their own level of negative perception. So much so that they were actually being actively persecuted. And so Peter is trying to give them some direction on how they can live this different, compelling life, even in the midst of hostile circumstances. So follow along with me. It'll be on the screens. I always like it when some people bring a Bible, some old-fashioned folks in the room. If you've got a Bible in hand, it's always good to have a nice Bible, though you can use your phones too. No judgment at all. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, this is what Peter says. He says, dear friends. Now, already two words in, we've got to stop and pause, all right? So bear with me. This will not be a four-hour sermon, but this is an important moment right here. This, this, is, this is critical. Some of your translations might say, beloved, these words are words you use for somebody you really cherish, like people you love dearly. And why I think it's so important to stop and recognize this moment is this is Peter we're talking about. This is walk on water Peter. This is chop somebody's ear off Peter. This is the Peter who preached the very first genuine Christian sermon telling thousands of people that they killed Jesus and it's all their fault. This is the Peter we're talking about. And yet in this moment, he's not talking like some heavy-handed boss. He's using this real tone of intimacy and tenderness. And obviously on one level, this is Peter's heart towards these people, but this is just a glimpse, I really believe, of the true heart of God at the same time. I think we just have to pause here and just recognize this. Guys, this is not just cliche stuff to say. We serve a God who is not a cruel dictator. You don't understand that. We serve a God who is a perfect, loving father. And this is not just sentimentality when we say these things. If you are a follower of Christ today, you need to know this. You are dearly loved by God. You have a dad who cares about you, who is intimately involved in the details of your life. And on one level, this is talking about Peter's heart to these people. It's God's heart towards us. But this is a challenge to us, church. This should be our attitude towards one another. You can understand, Peter is talking to a church right now. He's talking to people. He's talking to communities of faith. And he's saying, this is his heart for them. This should be our heart for each other. And this is where I think we need to always reorient our attitude, guys, especially in the American church. Because you understand, church is not an event you attend. It's a family you love. That's what the church is. You're not at just some experience right now to consume. You're gathered with family right now. You're with brothers and sisters in this room and online. That's what we're doing in this place. You read through the New Testament. It uses all this language of brothers and sisters and loving each other and sacrificing for each other. 
for the benefit of other people. This is a real committed community and family. And I know Northern Hills, we are already a large enough church, I know, where we can't all be best friends, right? We can't know everybody intimately. I get that. But I'm curious, do you have a few dear friends at this church, if you call Northern Hills home? Do you have a few beloved people that you're really doing life with? Do you feel like you're part of a family? You know, I just even a couple weeks ago, I got to hang out with um, a couple of people from this church for the Super Bowl. And you know what we actually were not doing while we were hanging out? We were not praying. I wasn't leading a Bible study on the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know what we were doing? We were eating a lot of food and talking about movies and music and how old Eminem and Snoop Dogg are and placing bets on it as we were Googling it. We were just hanging out and doing life together because that's what you do when you're family. You spend time together. And you know, when I even became the pastor here at this church, I remember having this real moment of reflection because a lot of pastors have different attitudes to how they view a congregation at church. And I remember just having this conscious moment where I'm like, I am not here to just amass some nameless crowd to preach at every week. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to help cultivate a family. I feel like that's my responsibility ultimately as a pastor, that this is supposed to be a real community that we're constantly building and cultivating and connecting together. And do not hear me wrong, church. I do not want to paint an unrealistic picture of the church right now, like this rosy picture of it's all perfect and amazing because just, just hear me on this. Um, I will disappoint you uh, significantly. Just don't worry. If I have not already said something from this stage that has offended you or hurt you in some way, don't worry. I will not disappoint you in that area. Just give me time, okay? I know pastors are supposed to be perfect, but I am very human. And I know a lot of us in this room, you've had experiences. You've had churches hurt you. You've had people in churches hurt you. I get it. It's family. Family is messy, guys. That's just the reality of it. And yet, even in this last six weeks as a pastor, when I've already made a bunch of dumb mistakes and stupid stuff, I have had so many awesome experiences of grace and love and connection with people and forgiveness. And that is this amazing thing called the church. It's this messy, beautiful mix of people coming from so many different places and everything. And yet it's this compelling, amazing picture of God's family. That's what this thing is. Dear friends, a beloved community. That's what Peter's talking about. But he's just getting started. He takes this moment, he's saying, we have to do a whole reorientation of how we view our place in this world. We need to see this thing totally in a different way. And so this is what Peter's going to say. He's going to say, we need to embrace a different identity. This is where Peter's going. Embrace a different identity. This is what he says right after he says, dear friends, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now, this is kind of interesting. You just think of a baseline definition of someone who's a foreigner or an exile. This is somebody who lives in a place that is not their true home, right? It's that simple. And if you have ever done any real traveling to a different culture, you get a real dose of reality about what this feels like when you go there. Nicole and I, pre-kids, we splurged and did this quick Europe sprint, you know, all the hostels and trains and everything, wanted to see some of the sights before our lives ended by having children. I'm just kidding. Um, but it was so interesting because I had honestly never really done any serious traveling before in my life. And it becomes very real when you are living in a culture that you're not comfortable with. And you're trying to read the signs, you're trying to understand the menus, and you're trying to talk to people. And we got lost in Paris at one moment, didn't even know what was happening. And here's the thing, no matter where Nicole and I went, we just didn't fit. We didn't fit anywhere, all right? We were too short for the Dutch people. 
We're too unattractive for the French people. We're way too extroverted and loud for the Swiss people. Like, nobody really liked us as Americans. I'm just going to be honest, all right? That was our experience. And yet, we are foreigners. And Peter, on one level, he's talking to the very real situation these people are in. Some of them, because of this persecution, got dispersed. So in a very real practical way, they are foreigners now. They're living in different places. They're trying to figure out their faith. They're trying to figure out how to live. This is what's happening to a lot of Ukrainians right now. All right? This is a very real experience people have. And yet, there's another level Peter's talking to. He's not just talking about the real situation, but he's talking to their spiritual situation too. Because you have to hear this. The moment you become a Christian, you receive new spiritual citizenship. You join a new kingdom. You take on a new identity. You are now a square peg in a round hole when it comes to this world. Paul, in another letter, contemporary of Peter's, he talks about the fact that we are now citizens of heaven. That's how he reframes our identity. And this is why this is so critical, guys. No matter how nice your house is, wherever you live, or how good your neighborhood is, or how nice the views are here in Colorado, you're not home. You're not in your ultimate home right now. And this is the tension Christians are called to live in, that we are not supposed to get too comfortable in our current surroundings. We're not supposed to make ourselves too comfortable in this world. Jesus, in John 17, 16, he said this, they, talking about us, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. John, one of Jesus' followers, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, here's what they're getting at. We are not supposed to attach our heart, our desires, our identity to the comforts and pleasures and experiences of this life. There is an attitude of a Christian of, I'm just passing through. I'm moving towards this ultimate kingdom, my true heritage, my true home. And that is a very uncomfortable place to live in. It's extremely disorienting. You never can quite get your footing. And yet Peter's saying, you need to embrace this identity. If you are serious about following Jesus on one level, you are never going to perfectly fit in this world and in this life. It's a new identity. And yet, if you have a distinctive identity, it requires a distinctive lifestyle at the same time. Peter's going to say this, we need to embrace a different lifestyle. Embrace a different lifestyle. He goes on from what we just said. He says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I got to pause here because immediately I know there's got to be some of us, you see that word sinful, you're like, oh, okay, here we go. Here comes the legalistic bigot Christians to tell us all about my sinful stuff I'm doing here. Bring on the judgment, Brian. This is what I'm expected and waiting for. And yet, we just got to acknowledge something, guys. This is just our current cultural moment. We live in an extremely permissive society right now. All right? The general attitude of our culture is basically, hey, as long as you're not harming somebody else or it's consensual if it involves another person... Feel free to have at it. That's just kind of the open attitude, right? I think that's a fair assessment. And that's just kind of what we do. Hey, if you have desires, act on them. Just don't hurt anybody or do any harm. And yet, understand the nuance here. There's some critical nuance that Peter's getting at. On one level, he is acknowledging that there are very normal, healthy desires, all right? You're hungry, eat some food. You know, you want to get married? Go on some dates, all right? Not a big deal. You want to bring the in-laws in town to get a break from your kids? Have at it. Not like I'm speaking from personal experience at all right now. All right, there are very normal, healthy desires that are perfectly legitimate. That's what he's saying. And yet, on another level, there's some very real destructive desires that we just have to be aware of that Peter's going to dig into. He calls these sinful desires. Some other translations call them passions of the flesh. 
And anytime you see that word flesh, particularly in the New Testament, we're not talking about skin. We're talking about this human sinful nature that we all have, that compulsive, selfish behavior that comes out of us, that just has to satisfy itself on any level. It's self-seeking. And we're fighting it all of the time. Paul was another writer in the New Testament. He gives us just a bucket list of what some of these passions of the flesh are, these sinful desires. This is what he says in Galatians 5.19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's quite a list. Now, here's the reality. Every single one of us is somewhere on that list. All right? You might have even got named for two or three of those things. That's just the reality. And even if you don't feel like you're on that list, Paul says at the very end, and the like. So he's like, don't worry, you're somewhere in this thing, all right? Nobody's off the hook. So here's what is so critical about this. If, if I'm losing you, draw in right now. This is important. This is really critical for us to notice. Peter is writing to Christians. Okay, that's a critical detail right there. That should be extremely encouraging to every single one of us in this room. Because here's what Peter is basically saying. If you have these types of desires and struggles and dynamics in your life, it does not void your Christian faith. That's critical for you to acknowledge. It is possible to love Jesus and have a massive battle going on inside of you. And this is, this is what's so important about Christianity. The moment you place your faith in Jesus... Yes, in that moment, you are saved. You have the hope of heaven. Your sins are forgiven. And yet, you are not completely fixed. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's a good spot to say an amen. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm very screwed up, Brian. Jesus has a lot to work on. And if you feel like, oh, my goodness, I'm coming in here as a total mess, trust me, you're going to fit right in, all right? You're with good company, all right? All of us are jacked up on some level, right? Let's just be real here. This is the human experience. So whether you are a Christian or not, Paul and Peter just point out this fact that we all have these sinful desires. We have stuff going on inside of us that are waging war against us. But this is where people get frustrated. Because they say, well, geez, why do Christians get all obsessed with moralizing and this behavior modification? Isn't it just, it's personal preference. Just do what you want. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Let, let's stop the judgment. Here's the argument from Peter, though, that we have to understand. And this is what rubs up against our culture. This is where there's big disagreement. This is not just a matter of personal preference. It's not us getting to decide what's right or wrong. Peter says this, this is war. There is war going on inside of you. These are not just desires that are okay to satisfy or ignore. No, these things are trying to ruin your life. James was this contemporary, again, of Peter's. This is what he says. He's talking about the same dynamic. James 1.15, he's talking about sinful desires here. He says, then after desire has conceived, it's working in your life, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So he's talking about this dynamic that we all experience. It's not always just physical death he's talking about. It just can destroy our lives on so many levels. And even if you're somebody who struggles with this idea of, oh, sinful desires and everything, we have to just acknowledge right here because we've had this experience. How many of us in this room, through our own life or through somebody else's life, have seen the real damage from people acting on sinful desires? You know, a weak moment, we just give in to a temptation, slipping back into an old habit or addiction. I can almost guarantee that every single one of us in this room has seen real death to relationships, death to opportunities, careers, 
just personal lives in general. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying, this is war. Like, this stuff can ruin you. This is something we have to take very, very seriously. And as much as you may think you can define your own morality, Peter's saying you are doing that at your own peril because it will not end well. But here's where a total 180 needs to happen. If you are somebody who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, this is where you shift your thinking. This is where the different lifestyle comes in because Peter says you need to abstain. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to abstain. Moderation is not okay when it comes to sinful desires. This is war. These things need to be put to death. And what's so interesting is, some of you guys know this experience, when you become a Christian, you, something weird starts happening in you. It's not overnight, it's kind of gradual, but your desires actually start to change a little bit. You're still kind of struggling with a lot of that old stuff, let's just be real. It can still surface up and come up. And yet, there's this whole other side of you that's like, man, I kind of don't really want that stuff anymore. Like that hookup culture used to kind of be my thing, and yet now it just kind of leaves me feeling a little empty. You know, I used to kind of slack off at work and take some supplies and print off all my personal stuff on the printer and everything. And now I kind of feel a little guilty about it. Like, I, I feel like I need to, like, I'm working for God, not even just these people. You know, you're like, I'm not really into the stuff I used to be into. I feel like my desires are changing. And yet, I still feel this struggle. This is what we're speaking to. And what Peter says is you need to fight back. This is war. You need to strengthen yourself and start stepping into the life God has called you. You need to abstain. So here is just the practical moment right here. How do you actually abstain? How do you actually start to see victory over some of these struggles we have? Because I know some of us in this room right now, you are still feeling it. You're like, oh yeah, Brian, those desires are very real. Like I want to stop with these substances, but I just keep going back into them. Pornography is still a very real thing in my life. I can't seem to get total victory. Whatever it is, there's so many different ways we experience this stuff with relationships and dynamics, food, media, inappropriate relationships. You're in a war. So I just want to encourage you. One of the reasons this is so hard is because it's a battle. Everybody is fighting this on some level. He doesn't say these sinful desires are giving you a back massage, all right? This ain't comfortable. This hurts. And yet, you got to fight. So how do you fight? And what I, what I think is so good about this is we just did a whole series called Strength to Your Core. If you missed it, I really would challenge you to get in this. But just as simple as for you guys, there's these things called spiritual disciplines and practices. These are fighting tactics in the battle for your life and faith. And so just even practically, we sometimes get into this idea of, well, isn't grace just like God's forgiveness and God cuddles me and he's like a teddy bear and like life is really good, right? And on one level, yes, that's true. God saves you. But I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is opposed to earning. You can't earn your salvation from God, but it's not opposed to effort. Real grace in your life will motivate you to work hard, to grow in your faith and grow in your spiritual strength. And this is what even Paul says in another letter. He says, train yourself to be godly. This idea of like physical exertion. There's work to this. You got to press in. And so how do you do some of this training? One thing, I would just really challenge some of you guys. Again, this is just some of you guys, this is part of your life, but I want to just keep pressing on this. Some of you guys, the daily practice of really getting into God's word is really critical. This is a weapon for you. Every day, it's reframing your thinking. It's helping align how you view the world and reorienting you to truth. It's so critical. If it's not part of your life, please get in. Just get a Bible. Steal one off the back table, all right? Take a Bible from the church. It's yours. Merry Christmas, all right? Early Christmas present. Start in Luke and just get going. Just start working at it, all right? But two, simple, I know. Prayer. Daily prayer. 
Make time to build a real relationship with God. And through that time, he, again, renews your desires. He changes the way you live your life, and he renews you from the inside out. You have to develop a vital relationship with God through prayer. I talked about fasting a couple weeks ago. Especially if you're somebody who just has some addictive habits, or maybe you just feel stalled out in your faith, please go back and find that message. And I'm telling you, it will be a very helpful practice for you. But two other ones I just want to highlight on real quick. Just something as simple as intentional relationships. At least one or two people in your life you can be totally open and honest with about everything, especially the sinful desire stuff in your life. James says this in James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I don't even think he's just talking about physical healing there. I think he's talking about the fact that there's emotional healing that needs to happen, spiritual healing. There is just a life you cannot attain without bringing other people into it. You can't win a war in isolation, guys. You have to have community in it. But even right now in this moment, guys, this is what we call corporate worship. This is a gathering right now. This is a spiritual discipline you are practicing right now. So congratulations. You've already got some points on the board at the beginning of the week. All right, feel really good about yourself. But again, I want to make sure you guys understand what's happening right now. You're not just attending some spiritual service to consume, like going to the store and getting a product or service. This is a supernatural gathering of God's people. God says he shows up in a special way when we gather as his people. This is a discipline right here. Church should not just be some passive experience. You just sit in your chair and kind of doze off and check ESPN and plan what's going on the rest of the day. This is not the time for that, guys. There should be a little spiritual exertion right now. You're leaning in. You're wrestling. You're asking questions like, okay, is, is he actually speaking truth right now? How do I wrestle with this? What does the word actually say? Like, you should be digging in. You should build up a little spiritual sweat right now. This is work. This is work. You should prioritize this thing. This matters, guys. What is happening right now in this moment? Gathering for corporate worship, and we could go on and on. There's so many other ones, but for the sake of time, you've got to keep going. So here's what Peter's saying. He's saying you've got to embrace a different identity. You've got to understand who you are in Jesus, how it changes the way you view your role in this world, but you've got to embrace a different lifestyle. If you're going to be serious about following Jesus, it requires a different approach to living your life. But there's one other piece to this. He says you need to embrace a different approach. Embrace a different approach. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, let me just take a quick second here because you see that word pagans. We sometimes think of that as a really derogatory word like, oh my goodness, is that a judgy word Peter's using? He's just speaking generally about people who don't follow Jesus. Just people aren't Christians, all right? This is not a judgmental word he's using. But did you catch what he said right there? He said, living among the pagans. Peter, right now in this moment, acknowledges the fact that as a Christian, your attitude should not be total separation from the surrounding world. Your strategy should not be hunkering down in a bunker and just waiting for Jesus to come back. He is expecting us to be living around and engaging with the culture and the world. He's saying this should just be something that's a part of your life. And it sometimes makes me scared. I'll talk to people who are Christians sometimes, and they'll be like, Brian, I don't really have any friends that aren't Christians. And I would say, well, that's a real problem. <laughs> you should have some very good friends who do not share your beliefs. Actually, I would say it's almost a requirement if you're serious about following Jesus. You should be so engaged with the world that that is just a natural thing for you. So I would just challenge some of you guys. Do you have some people that you are just living among, you're doing life with, who would not call themselves Christians? That is a really critical thing. And yet, here's what Peter says. He said, there's going to be a lot of people that accuse you of doing wrong. 
Now, I'll be the first one to admit, there are plenty of Christians, I can even do that, who uh, have given the entire religion a bad name, right? We have done some dumb stuff throughout history. I will be the first to acknowledge it. And I can guarantee you, at any moment in time, there's some crazy person out there who claims the name of Jesus, who's some crazy, intense bigot or whatever, and the mainstream news media will find them and put them on national television, all right? That will happen. That's just part of it. And yet, here's the thing. Peter's not talking about any of that stuff. Peter, particularly here, is talking about slander. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about people making false and damaging statements about you that are totally untrue. He's saying there's going to be people that accuse you of things that are fundamentally not true but are happening because of your identification with Jesus. You know what's so interesting? The first century Christians, you know what some of the stuff they were accused of? Some of the stuff is crazy. First century Christians were accused of being cannibals. People thought they were literally eating other people because they talked about this thing called communion where they eat the body and drink the blood, this symbolic imagery, and they're like, no, dude, I think those people are eating people in their meetings. It's crazy stuff happening right there. You know what they're also accused of? Incest, because they're like, they keep calling everybody brother and sister. It's like this giant ingrown family. I didn't even, what's going on in there? That was an accusation against Christians. Atheists, Christians were called atheists in the first century because they wouldn't participate in the worship practices of the other religions going on of that day. They're like, these people are totally non-religious, which clearly is not true. Um, Another interesting one, Nero blamed Christians when Rome burned, and which many historians argue and even agree now that it's very likely Nero did it himself, but this led to a massive persecution of Christians, horrendous persecution for a false accusation against them. Now think about some of the accusations against Christians today. These are just a couple, we even read them at the top, but homophobes. A lot of people put that blanket statement across Christians, right-wing bigots, Women oppressors, anti-intellectual. I mean, I could literally go on and on and on with the list. And I know probably some of us in this room might say, well, Brian, from my experience, that feels like an accurate description. And I would say, I know there are so-called Christians out there that, again, give the whole thing a bad name. But I know that is not a fair assessment of the real Christian faith. Because here's what happens, guys. Real, genuine Christian faith, it forms people to love and serve everybody around them, even if they live lifestyles we don't agree with. That's what real Christianity does. Genuine Christianity, guys, may involve certain political convictions from time to time, but it never leads somebody to be captive to a party to the point of participating in hateful and hostile behaviors. That is not genuine Christianity. True Christianity, guys, read your history. Any time the real thing takes hold in a culture, it massively improves women's rights and opportunities and lifts them up in the culture. That is a fact. And if you don't agree, you need to do your homework. Some of the greatest scientific and intellectual achievements have come through Christians throughout history because we have this attitude that God made this beautiful creation be studied and appreciated as an act of worship towards him. Guys, that's the real thing. But you need to know, if you're a serious follower of Jesus, you are going to be accused. There are going to be things said about you. There are going to be people that just decide they don't like you because of your affiliation with Jesus. So I have to ask you today, are you okay with that? Are you at peace with some of the hostility that might come your way? Is this something that you have just accepted as, again, a true follower of Jesus? Because Peter says it's going to happen. This is something that's just going to become as part of following Jesus, and yet he doesn't stop there. 
He says, live such good lives among the people accusing you. Again, that they will ultimately glorify God on the day he visits us. There's this woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She's this really well-known professor in some of the elite universities around the country. And she actually was a leading prominent voice in the entire LGBT movement way before it became mainstream. She was very ahead of the curve on that. She was in a same-sex relationship herself. This is a big part of her life. She was actually doing research on right-wing Christianity and what she perceived as its hatred of people like her. And she was getting ready to write books and papers on this. She comes into contact with a pastor during her research who simply invites her over to dinner with his family. And she's thinking this might be more ammunition for her research. And this one dinner with this pastor and his family led to uh, regular dinners ongoing. And what completely flipped Rosaria's experience upside down was she kind of this moment where she's like, these people aren't bigots at all. They're not judging me. They're inviting me into their home. Like there's genuine hospitality happening here. I have never experienced such love before in my life. There's something about these people that's so compelling, dare I say. And through this experience, Rosaria actually came to a genuine faith in Jesus herself, and it fundamentally flipped her life upside down. She's actually married to a pastor now today, which is kind of ironic and hilarious in its own way. And she writes books and articles about just God's sexuality and just a Christian's engagement with culture and how to live in a compelling way through just simple acts of love and generosity and hospitality. And the reason I tell this story is because this is what Peter is talking about, church. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, is your life so different that people cannot help but notice is your life so compelling that people actually stand corrected about their opinions of the Christian faith and you as a Jesus follower? Are people coming to know Jesus because of our encounters with them? Because that's what Peter was saying. He's saying, glorify God on the day he visits us. He's saying there's going to be people that are actually glorifying God because of our interactions with them. And this whole idea of day he visits us, Peter's giving an allusion to the ultimate return of Christ. He's talking about this end-time fulfillment of human history that God's going to bring together, and we just have to have an honest moment. That is not going to be a good day for a lot of people. I mean, this is just what we're told, that for those who have just said no to Jesus, he's just saying, okay, then you need to deal with your sin on your own. But here's the cool thing. Peter says, because of your compelling life, because of your engagement with other people, there's going to be people where that is a day of glory and celebration and excitement because they will have become somebody who's trusted Jesus and had him wash away their sins. They've experienced his grace because of your interaction with them. That's what Peter's saying is possible. In Northern Hills, that's ultimately what will change this world. It's not just better lighting at our services, cooler experiences, better dressed pastors. That is not the strategy for real cultural renewal. It's Jesus followers living like Jesus, truly being compelling in the places God has called us to, and people being so compelled that they cannot help but be drawn to this person, Jesus, because of our interaction with them. And my hope today, as we just close together, is on one level, I'm hoping there's a little bit of inspiration right now. You're like, yes. That's what I want to do. That's what I want my life to be about. I want to be that compelling. I want to change people's lives. I hope there's a little challenge here, but I, I, I'm betting 
there's probably a little bit of conviction right now too. Because I'm sure some of us in here would be like, you know what? I'm not that compelling, Brian. Actually, I can't even barely keep my own life together, let alone help somebody else figure out theirs. I got all sorts of stuff going on that you don't even know about. And if there's any feeling like that, this is just what I want to close on. I just want us to appreciate just the power of Jesus working in our own lives. Paul, at one point in one of his letters, gives this bucket list of all these sinful desires, just all the horrible stuff that we give, give ourselves to and give into these desires. He gives this whole long, nasty bucket list, but this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You need to hear me today. If you are someone who feels like the sinful desires are winning, even though you're like, I trust in Jesus, but I can't see victory, you need to know that is not your fundamental identity. That's not who you are. That is not how God sees you. You have taken on a different identity, and God is working out a different lifestyle in you. He is renewing you from day to day, and he's turning you into that compelling, powerful force for his kingdom in this world. That is what God is doing for you right now. You're his precious son. You're his precious daughter. You're one of his beloved children. That is your identity in Christ. And for anybody in this room where you'd say, that actually has not been part of my experience, I would say, on top of anything else I've talked about today, that is where you start. Because in Jesus, we see the most compelling act of love we have ever seen before. That he went to a cross and he died for your sin. He defeated sin and death through his resurrection. And that is what he offers to you as you place faith in him. You can do that today. You can literally say, Jesus, I want to invite you in my life. I need that renewal. You can pray that with me when we close. For a lot of us in this room, you'd call yourself a Christian. But you need to have an honest moment and say, man, there are sinful desires that are winning the war in my life. Like I am being taken down by them. And this is an opportunity to pray to God, God, I need you to help me abstain. I need you to make me stronger in this fight. I need your help to win these battles that I'm facing every single day. And then for all of us, as we close, let's ask God to make us compelling, the type of people that can truly change lives, that can cause people to turn their faces towards Jesus and look forward to that day when he's gonna return. Because I know if we can be a church that is truly compelling, guys, we're not gonna see a culture that's repelled by Jesus, but is truly compelled and attractive and falling in love with him. And that is my prayer for us today. Let's pray together. God. We are just in awe of your compelling love for us, that you would die in our place, that you would pay the ultimate price so we could be renewed, so we could win the war against sin and ultimately defeat death itself because of what you've done, Lord. I pray right now for anybody who has truly not placed real faith in Jesus, who has never had that real encounter with you right now, Lord, I pray that we would just reach out to you, that you truly would take the hold of hearts right now and through our church and people would have a genuine transformation in their lives. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that are trying so hard to follow you, but we fall so far short. It's easy to feel like, man, I can't get this thing figured out. Life is so hard. I, I pray for real victory today, fresh strength, that we'd be able to abstain from the sinful desires. We'd be able to win the war of the flesh going on inside of us, God. 
And ultimately, I pray for our entire community that we can truly be compelling to a watching world, that people would stand corrected when they encounter our lives on their views of Jesus, and we truly could see a transformed world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.